You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote 2018. And while we've got you, subscribe, rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com ideas. Enjoy the show. I want to talk a little bit today about courage and bravery and finding your voice. Um, and I'll tell you why I want to speak about that subject. A few weeks ago, I was in South Africa, um, in Pretoria, and I had been asked to speak on Women's Day. So Women's Day uh, sort of commemorates the day in 1956 when thousands of women across South Africa marched to Pretoria um, to demand that uh, women not be su- African women not be subject to the past laws. So Women's Day is a very important day in South Africa. So I'd been asked to speak, and the topic they gave me was finding the courage of your voice. So, of course, you know, Women's Day has been commercialized. Capitalism knows how to commodify even the most radical histories. So there are marketing campaigns in pink and giveaways on that day and... Um, you know, everyone is uh, asked to, uh, you know, to think about it as Mother's Day, right? And women are asked to pamper themselves. So it was Women's Day, and of course, I was not engaged in any kind of self-care. I was working. And so because I speak very candidly in my book about sexual assault, about racial abuse, about love, about personal failures, of which there have been many in my life, I often get requests like this. People ask me, to talk about the power of speaking out and tell us how women can be brave. So I duly put on my thinking cap and I, you know, tapped out a whole list of strategies for speaking out. And I was, of course, as usual, sort of in between doing a million things, right? While I'm doing the talk, I'm like doing a lot of things and I'm not really focusing that much on the talk, I just have to deliver it, kind of like today. (laughs) So I get to the venue And I look at this supportive audience of women who had read my book um, and to whom it had meant something. And I was feeling pretty good about, I had just bought this like green velvet skirt, so I was feeling good about that. (laughs) And the whole scene, and I was really struck by how easy it was for me to talk in the setting and how little courage it actually took. There was wine, and we were sitting in this beautiful house in Pretoria, and the Canadian High Commission was hosting us. And there was this interesting mix of older women and younger women, and no one there was going to challenge or threaten me. And really, for the most part, my audiences, whether they are in Australia or in South Africa, are really kind and warm and very receptive. I'm not saying they're not critical or that sometimes I don't find myself in sharp opposition to someone who I may be on a panel with. But this is par for the course when you are interested in ideas. So even the most robust exchanges are typically very respectful. And I'm not talking about the online trolls because that's a whole nother world. So it occurred to me as I faced this audience that actually speaking up and out for me is not, doesn't require a huge amount of courage. So I felt a bit like a fraud. And this is not to say that it has or doesn't require courage for other people. But for me that day, as I took the podium, I felt supremely underqualified to speak to the question that I was about to answer. 
which was how can we be brave? It was too late, so I read from my notes, I blustered through, but I've been thinking a lot since then about how to answer that question in more meaningful ways. And so I thank you, Edwina, for giving me the opportunity to do this today. So apologies if I meander a bit, because I'm still in some ways working these ideas out in my mind. And so they represent the beginning uh, rather than the end of a process. And I'm working through many interrelated ideas, right? About voice and representation and courage and about confessional narratives and public, public spaces the burdens placed on women, on black people, on brown people, on queer people, on you know, the others, to challenge authority and to be vulnerable in the public domain, while men, typically, who really would sometimes benefit from being a bit more thoughtful and more open, um, aren't expected to undertake the same kind of political and emotional work. So there's a bit of fuzziness, but I hope you bear with me, because uh, we're thinking this through together. So who is brave, and what does bravery look like in the public domain? And most importantly, the last question I want to think through is, what difference does it make when we are brave? So my entry point to this conversation is through my own personal experience, this lifelong journey I've had of living with heroes and with the idea of heroism as a South African exile. So I grew up in lots of different countries. My father was a freedom fighter. My mother was an accountant, which it's a very interesting pairing. Um, she talked sense into him. I visited home, that means South Africa, for the first time when Nelson Mandela was released uh, from prison, from, Robin I from Polesmore Prison in 1990. And I finally moved home to South Africa when I had finished university. Um, so that was when Nelson Mandela was still president. So it really was a dream come true. And part of what informed my decision to write this book was um, that it was a, an experience about growing up in exile. It was the knowledge that many of the stories that people know about South Africa are stories about men, big men. Nelson Mandela, Cecil John Rhodes, General Jan Smuts, who was instrumental to founding the United Nations, right? So the names that you will hear will be the names of men. And I wanted to give a story, uh, a, a voice to a, a smaller set of stories. Stories that happened against a pretty extraordinary backdrop. So the story of my family, of my sisters, and myself, who were probably like the most confident, well-loved children you will ever have met <laughs> in the world. And we were raised to believe that one day, Nelson Mandela would be free and that we would go home to our country. And that we would be, have a hand in ruling that country. And that is pretty much what happened. So in many ways, I think we took ideas about courage and heroism for granted. In South Africa, women picked up guns, they fought for liberation, but still, of course, when it was time to craft a national story about who were our heroes, there was this wide-scale silencing of women's experiences and contributions, right? So while I wasn't a freedom fighter, I was a child, um, and I wasn't brave on a national uh, scale, I was merely caught up in events, every time we moved to a different country and we had to start again, I had to blink back tears and I had to call on reserves. I had these wonderful parents who made everything seem wonderful, but I wanted to write a book about the terrain of the nation and the idea of bravery beyond the obvious political stage, right? In our case, Mandela's imprisonment triggered my father's departure. He left without telling anyone where he was going at the age of 21. So when I came home, 
when I was 17 years old and, my gran and I met my grandfather for the first time, he looked at me as we were, as I was leaving the house, he looked at me from behind and he said, you know, the last time I saw your father, he was going to university and he was exactly the same age as you. And it was this incredibly poignant moment because my dad didn't go back for 30 years. And so Mandela's, uh, Mandela's going, uh, being sentenced to Robben Island triggers my father's departure, and Mandela's release triggers us our coming back. So in real life, um, Mandela really did function as this person who explained why we weren't at home. Um, each time we moved, it was like, well, Mandela's not free, right? So we were lucky. We lived at a time when being a refugee was not a source of shame. It was a point of pride. The world understood that we had no choice, that we were not criminals. Even my communist father, who was branded a terrorist by his own government, was seen by the Canadian government, which gave us asylum, as a person who had the right to have a state. Times have changed. And so this, the book I've written is about bravery at many different levels. My parents, Mandela, the African National Congress, the aunts and uncles who formed part of that community that I grew in. Mainly, though, it's also a book about the bravery that it requires to be a woman, a girl first, and then a woman in the world. And I wanted to paint a picture about how treacherous the world can be in, an, in ordinary and mundane ways, and about the similarities in women's experiences around the world, across space and time. So whether it's walking down the street, or going on a date, or going to fetch water, there are dangers involved. So I come to this question of bravery in a complicated way, with larger ideas about heroes and revolutionaries hanging over my head with a feminist viewpoint and instinct, but also with some skepticism about how some of the claims of courage and bravery we hear about often today need to be interrogated. So I got to Australia four years ago because my partner is from here. We settled in Perth, and I found a gig working at a place called the Center for Stories. And we do all these fantastic things, but we help bring stories um, to life. And so I'm interested here in Australia and in South Africa about how we speak about personal matters in ways that can render them public, what some people have called confessional narratives, which are focused usually on the experiences of marginalized people, women, migrants, queer people. And it's these sorts of stories that typically make people say, oh my goodness, she's so brave, right? Bravery, of course, only exists in relation to the idea of danger. So courage is a measure of the consequences that we are facing when we speak out. So when people say, I'm brave, they're operating under the assumption that my public stance may have some negative consequences for me, right? A loss of income or status or physical threats. They're also recognizing that speaking about painful things is simply hard at an emotional level, right? That I risk opening old wounds, that taking this risk makes me and any one of the many others who have had made their private experiences public, that make, it makes us vulnerable. And I don't want to underestimate the daring that it takes to speak out, and I certainly don't want to under, undermine the power of the notion that the personal is political. And of course, as a feminist, I'm very aware of what that has meant. But sometimes I think it's also important to interrogate this idea because those like myself who are often most able to speak out, most able to appear brave and resilient and courageous, are people for whom there are some protections, especially protections of class privilege. So I'm thinking here too of the Me Too movement, 
which has chronicled awful abuses that many of us have worked and campaigned around for a very long time. And the victims, who are beautiful Hollywood women, which is not in any way to diminish what has happened to them, they have been brave, but it's important to recognize that a different order of bravery is at stake for migrant women, for example, who have had to uh, withstand repeated and often invisible bullying and sexual harassment in factories or on farms, right? That it requires a different kind of fortitude to ride a train to work every morning wearing hijab, knowing that you will likely see the same man who taunts you daily, that these acts of courage in the real world are often hidden from view, and therefore they aren't recognized as courageous because they happen on a daily basis away from public stages. And they often happen to people who have little capacity to do anything about them. So bravery, of course, is involved when you speak out. What's important is to recognize that if we only hold up those who speak out as being brave, then we ignore a couple of things. The first is that often those who speak do so because they can. They have the room to think. They have the room to breathe. Secondly, I didn't make a second point in my notes. <laughs> That's great. So in my book, in my talks, um, these are the consequences of having spent a lot of time in higher education, right? Um, they're the result of my parents' significant investment in our educations. I'm able to speak because I have this wonderful partner, and we share childcare and domestic responsibilities. Although I will say the other day I was talking to my, um, my partner, Simon, and he, uh, we were talking about, um, we were gossiping. Okay, I'll admit it, we were gossiping. And <laughs> I was trying to make it sound nice, but we were gossiping. And we were gossiping about someone who knows, um, we know a family where the male partner does very little childcare. And um, so he said, uh, uh, so he was denouncing this you know, other couple. And he says, I mean, you know, I do more than my share of domestic labor <laughs> around this place. And I was like, wow. So I was like, really? And I, so that was the warning, but he didn't get it. <laughs> so so he, he repeated it. I was like, really? He was like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, just objectively speaking, he said. <laughs> I do more than you. Fantastic. I said, really? It was the, thir the third warning, but he still didn't get it. Uh, so we made a list. We did. I mean, I, you know, it's like, it's like kind of a cliche stereotype about the feminist list, but we... So we made a list. I was like, are you sure you want to say that? And he was like, absolutely, because he's a neat freak, right? So he's constantly wiping the counters. And in his mind, like wiping the counters and washing the dishes amounts to some real and serious domestic labor. So we had to have the conversation where I was like, when was the last time that you bought a birthday present for any of the children's friends? When was the last time you bought clothes for the children? Where you just looked at the child and thought to yourself, hmm, this person is growing, right? <laughs> right? So all of these things. When was the last time you had coffee with someone you're totally uninterested in knowing, but you have to do the play date thing? <laughs> Never happened. Anyway. So these are the props that allow me to appear brave that allow me to stand on a stage with well-thought-through ideas, having printed out my document somewhere, because I can reflect on my experiences. So it's not because I'm special. It's mainly because I have space. 
I have room to write and the kind of cultural capital that translates into audiences. So when we valorize bravery without making these props visible, I think we unintentionally feed into existing inequalities between middle class and working class, between women and men. I know how much unpaid work that I have had to take on in order to now be able to command better rates when I speak or when I write. And my ability then rests on privilege, not simply courage, because I was able to undertake unpaid work because I have a subsidy of a class background that allows me to do that thanks to those revolutionary parents who really hustled, right? And thanks to Canada, which gave us asylum, because have, being given a state allows you the base that allows you to grow and become the kind of family, the kind of person that you would want to be able to. And we'll get to this question just now. So what difference does it make when brave people speak? You know, I think that it affects the quality and the level of public discourse. And it actually deepens democracy if you have people who are able to speak out and a wide, uh, wide diverse range of people are able to speak out. So to put the question more clearly, when black and brown people, when women, when queer people speak and tell their nation about their pain and their trials, when they are brave, what difference does it make qualitatively to their rights and to what the country is able to do for them? When we tell our stories of racism and misogyny, does it change structures? Does it tear down systems? Is it fair to place the burden on those who speak out to bring about those kinds of changes? The answers, of course, are complicated. So firstly, although it's not always clear, I think there is a link between the stories we tell about ourselves and the democratic process. It's not always a straight line, but confessional narratives about growing up queer, for example, or growing up black can find their way into the consciousness of the nation. And then when an opportunity presents itself, these narratives help to push forward a specific agenda. So for example, when we had the referendum on gay marriage, which was a completely unnecessary referendum, but be that as it may, years of storytelling, years of having a narrative in the country made a difference, right? So it, it proved the cumulative power of stories over time. The same is true for the African gangs rhetoric that the ridiculous Dutton uses, right? Because the pushback is important and it speaks to the many stories that are already in circulation, that are in the ether, that counter the single story that he wants to tell us about these criminals, right? That counter narratives are important for reframing. They're essential when there are legislative moments of change. So what you are doing when you are speaking out and telling different stories is creating an environment where when something is ready to change, the stories fill that vacuum, yeah? Secondly, and more grimly, I think when we think about offshore detention and the gross violation of the rights of mothers and fathers and children and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters, which is how I increasingly like to talk about refugees rather than use that word, which flattens an experience, so when we talk about the mothers and the fathers and the sisters and the brothers who come from somewhere and who are beloved and who love, just like all of us in this room, and yet are held hostage on Nauru and Manus Islands, it's evident that stories have power. And it's evident because the Australian government seems so profoundly fearful of allowing the public to hear firsthand stories from refugees in detention, right? The startling absence of stories should alarm Australians. The few experiences of refugees that have filtered through have been powerful. Beirut's Bochani's book that's out at the moment is a testament to this. 
Still, the fact that the government has effectively banned media, that you have to have you know, a, leak, a you know, leak of 2,000 documents that The Guardian published, I mean, this is shocking, right? In this day and age, that ought to trouble us, I think, more than it seems to. In a democratic country where the freedom of expression of racists is protected vociferously, when we can't hear the voices of people whose rights are enshrined in international law, we don't complain? This is stunning to me. Only states and countries that have something to hide behave this way. So I think there are many brave and outspoken people in detention centers, and they have and will continue to speak out. But what they teach us is that being brave is not enough. The brave need to be supported by the actions of others by a groundswell of organizing and action and resistance. Because individual courage in the face of institutional power can never be sufficient unless it's supported by mass campaigns. The anti-apartheid movement is an excellent example of this. As a South African, it's hard for me not to see some parallels, very unfortunate parallels, between Manus and Nauru and my own, countries in the dark, and my own country in the dark days of apartheid. Part of the apartheid project involved creating physical distance between whites and blacks. It was very important to the apartheid regime that its crimes took place far from view, away from polite company. And it was the fact that black people were shoved into homelands and townships and far away from their own pristine and wealthy lives that made so many people who thought that they were good people go along with apartheid for so long. We have to insist on footage, on stories, on news about what's happening over there. Manas and Nauru are shame on all of us because we don't insist on knowing more. So when the Truth Commission hearings happened in South Africa, many white South Africans said we had no idea. Faced with scenes of grieving black people as crime after crime was publicly aired after so many years, many white people said time and again we didn't know. And black South Africans who were tasked with Forgiving whites for the sake of moving forward often displayed remarkable grace and did forgive the perpetrators. Today, though, I think the people that many black South Africans resent the most, the ones we really haven't forgiven, are the ones who said then and continue to say we didn't know. Because this is a lie. Because at least the ones who killed and violated were honest. But those who didn't know ought to have known. All they had to do was drive across the highway, talk to their servants. They were willfully ignorant, and therefore, I think they were morally complicit. And so it's hard to know, it's hard not to know if you are looking and if you're asking. Courage, then, requires not just speaking out. Bravery doesn't only belong to the spokespersons of rage, to the marginalized and the ones who are seen to be strong. Bravery belongs to all of us who vote. It, me it belongs to those of us who have a voice and who, can insist and who can insist on knowing. Because really, once you know, it's much harder not to act. This is what my white South African compatriots understood in their bones in the dark days of apartheid. They knew that what was being done to us, to black people, in their name, if they knew all of the details, they would each have felt compelled to act or not. So they chose not to know, so that they wouldn't have, to, wouldn't have to say afterwards, we knew, but we did nothing. 
It's important that Australians, not the ones who are constantly asked to testify to their experiences through confessional narratives about pain and resilience, but those who have the power to vote and to write to your MPs and so on, and therefore have the power to be courageous in silent ways, ways that aren't on the public stage, it's important that you not make the same mistakes as my white compatriots, my brothers and sisters in South Africa. This is what it means to be brave, in my view. To speak, yes. But more importantly, to be brave, you have to know so that you can act. Thank you. Thank you, Sasanke. Honestly, there's so much there, I don't know where to start. <laughs> so I'm just going to go right back to the beginning. You said that your father was a freedom fighter and your mother was an accountant, and I've heard you say in the past that this makes you a pragmatic idealist. It does. <laughs> How has that played out in your life? Um, at a personal level, it means I've made some good choices, despite his um, misogyny on some days. I have a good partner. <laughs> that was practical. Um, but I, it, I think it means that I am constantly weighing the tension between the world as it is, understanding the world as it is, and um, pushing for the world as I would like it to be. Sort of thinking about how you hold those two realities is a constant thing in my mind. Um, and so it means I've done lots of different things in my life, some of which are more pragmatic and some of which are more idealistic. Um, so at the moment, I, I, I'm writing, and I wouldn't define myself in any way as an activist, but in the past, I've certainly been much more idealistic. And in part, I think that for me, writing is, is pragmatic rather than idealistic. That's interesting because that flips what a lot of people would assume. I think that when you when you um, write, you shouldn't pretend that you're being an activist because what you're doing is writing. It's interesting, though. I was... Uh, sorry, I'm going <laughs> to do the worst name drop of the day here. I was talking to Ronan Farrow about this last <laughs> night. <laughs> and he was saying the same thing, essentially. He is a journalist and not an activist. Yeah. But there must be a part of you that when people who are activists take your writing and turn that into something that they can use in their own activism. That must yeah. be a source of pleasure and pride. I'm always happy when I hear that. I want it to happen, so I don't feel neutral about it. I, I like it when it happens. I think that many excellent activists ha know how to write very well and use writing as a tool as part of their repertoire of activism. Uh, but I'm not involved in organizing, in being on the street, in challenging policy issues in the way that I have been in the past, I'm not doing that. And I think it's, a really, it's important to, to be clear that there is a difference. Um, there's a difference. Uh, and I think too many writers claim activism. Mm. And it's, not, it's just not true. But it's interesting because what it does, and you've actually you said somewhere um, that there's a difference between being politically aware and being politically active. And I wonder if that difference isn't the bravery that you were talking about. Look, I do think that um, there is a So it's like, it's like the stuff about storytelling. It's like we listen to a great story 
and then somehow the seduction of that story makes us think that we know that person and makes us believe that we did something. We become closer to the subject of the story and our empathy with them makes us feel good in a human connection, but we never left the house. <laughs> so, right, so I think the seduction of writing is that I can, I can talk about social justice and I can feel as though I'm doing something different from writing. So it's not like I'm doing nothing, but what I am doing is writing. It belongs in this box. I am not stepping out and doing something else. When I do that, I call myself an activist. But by your own argument made very eloquently just now, it is those stories and the telling of those stories that actually can in a, in a, plant the seeds of very, very real social political change. In a cumulative way, absolutely. And those stories matter because of the ways in which people operating in the real world, whether or not they define themselves as activists, but more importantly, what they do with those stories, that's what matters, right? So if we had only had the stories and then the referendum time comes and people choose to vote um, no, that's a problem, right? So it's the doing, it's the action combined with the story that makes a difference. But I don't think we can do stories alone, which is tempting, and then feel as though we've done something. So your book charts your movement through various countries in Africa, to Canada, to the United States, to Australia, um, and to South Africa in the middle of all of this, right? Um, as you say. And in all of those countries, you still identify as South African, right? This is, this, is, this is like really, really, really core to your identity. But I think sometimes, and I say this as an Australian, that patriotism of that sort of nature gets a really bad rap, right? I mean, in Australia, the sort of cliched image of a patriot is somebody who was throwing beer bottles at the Cronulla riots and yeah. has a Southern Cross tattoo on their chest, you or know. Or has a lapel now, Yeah, right? <laughs> They've got the pins, they've got the pins so we know which side we're on. I'm wondering how you reconcile that kind of unthinking, violent patriotism that we don't just see in Australia, of course, we yeah. see it all over the world, yeah. with the kind of love for country that you describe. Yeah. So we, I, I have always loved the dream of South Africa, the idea of South Africa. Uh, and it's an idea and a dream that I, I continue to believe in and continue to hold on to and continue to love. And the idea of South Africa has, uh, was, I think, appealing and compelling to many people around the world. So the fact that the anti-apartheid movement was so robust and operated you know, in so many parts of the world, even when governments didn't, um, didn't accede to the demands of their citizens, people on the ground, you know, continue to believe in this idea. So what's the idea? The idea is that there should be no place in the world in which there's racism, that we ought to be able to live together equally and in peace with an injustice. This, this is a foundational idea that I think everyone kind of needs to subscribe to. So the idea of South Africa um, operates as this kind of castle in the air for me and for many South Africans. What I think has happened in the last 20 years in South Africa is that the people who embodied that idea and who really lived those ideals, who um, you know, were revolutionaries, uh, were doing so in extraordinary times, under extraordinary circumstances. And when the world became normal again, 
and we got freedom, the normal people did what normal people do, which was revert to being just general assholes, right? Because that's who people are. So I think part of the fall, the, part of the issue was that we had such high expectations. Mm. And then I think part of the, the tra but we, people talk about the tragedy of South Africa, and I don't find South Africa to be a tragic place at all. I think it's an amazing place because we have gone through having a hero and realizing you don't need a hero and doing what Australians do particularly well. And I know you guys are very frustrated about, you know, this change, constant changing, <laughs> changing governments as often as you sort of change your clothes. <laughs> but part of what that speaks to is an in uh, short fuse. Yeah. High levels of accountability. Don't like it? Let's, we're going to change these guys. And I think there's something to be said for that. Because then the, you don't need heroes in Australia. What you need are politicians who are accountable to people. And that's the place we're beginning to get to as South Africans. Or politicians that um, put the needs of the people ahead of the fact that they don't like their boss. Yes. So that's the next. That's the next step. For, that's the next stage of democracy for Australia. Yeah. Well, let's hope. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because you have written in recent years very critically of the ANC, um, and you know, it feels a little like you're kind of recanting a religion or something. You know that that that, that you're the family that you were grown up in with a. Yeah. ANC Freedom Fighter Father and the shadow that that cast over your childhood and adolescence. Um, I wonder what you do when your country does stuff that you really, really can't morally abide. And I think as Australians in this room, we kind of want an answer to that question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you do what South Africans did and what I've seen a lot of Australians doing, not enough. And I think in Australia, there's lots of marches and protests that happen all the time around refugee questions. There's a, there is a level of mobilization. So I, I think it's important also to not talk about like nothing's happening, right? So there's, there's a lot of that. What worries me, as I said in my comments there, is that there isn't sufficient um, mobilizing around the silencing. I, I do think that... If, if people were faced with actual foot, if they had to deal with what it looks like mm. every night on their television. Well, it ended the Vietnam War, didn't it? This is the thing that, right? So, so I think that, in addition to the, to the shame of it, is Im it's important to continue to march. I also think that, in some ways, politicians across the world have learned to ignore the street. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem there, but I think that's part of the issue. So I think what you do in, in, in any place, in South Africa was no different, when we didn't understand what our president was talking about with uh, you know, HIV, we took to the streets and we literally reversed that policy. South Africa has the largest HIV program in the world. As a, as a, on the basis, we went from denialism to having the largest program in the world. And that's people power. That is because we got on the street. And also because there was an urgency because so many people were dying. People were dying and, and South Africans took to the streets to stop that from happening. Because uh, they were dying when he was denying it. Mm. So they would have died <laughs> had we not taken to the streets. Mm. I think what you do is you hold on to the idea of the place that you love, not because of a geographic space, but because of the values it represents. And you fight for that, regardless who the government is. So you and your husband tried very hard to live in South Africa for a long time, right? And when you write about it in the book, um, it's almost like there are stages of a kind of slow divorce from, or a slow realisation that it couldn't keep on going in the way that it was. And in the book, it's, it's quite tied up 
in this sort of sense of class privilege and you're sort of wanting to undermine, in a way, your own class privilege. So for a while you refused with your family to live in a gated community, but then there was an incident where your... But we stayed, we didn't, we didn't move into a gated community. Right. That would but, have been death. <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, you know, this sense of the privilege of the middle class played out in a nation where there has been gross inequality traditionally and that the end of apartheid didn't really fix. It didn't. How, how do you as a... I mean, you use your privilege, obviously, to address audiences, but sort of in your deepest, darkest soul, how do you reconcile that kind of conflict? Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard because South Africa has become a country of elites. Uh, it, all, it, always, it was a country of white elites, and now it's become a country of elites. <laughs> and um, so there's been some diversification. <laughs> and, and what it speaks to is the, how important it is to, on the one hand, hold a critical race analysis in your head, and on the other hand, not be seduced by it. Because if we are seduced by the race analysis only, then we can forgive um, the predations of the elite black people who are relying in the same ways that white people rely on domestic labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's also important to recognize that uh, there are difference in, differences in generational wealth and in the institutional power that white people continue to have you know, so as a black middle-class person, I also don't have, you know, huge tracts of land, which then require me to treat the people who work on the farm in particular ways, and that, you know what I mean? So there's, there's a difference. <laughs> um, but, I think living, but I think living with inequality is very, very difficult. And South Africa has to not be unequal. This is the game changer. So this is why this question of the land is so important right now. Mm. Um, and it's also uh, a bit of a fake debate because it's not going to solve that issue. Um, what is going to solve that issue, in my view, is to have a properly elected government which puts in place policies which seriously look at creating a sovereign wealth fund. We have gold, we have diamonds in that country. You know, so there are different institutional arrangements that need to be made. And so my answer is always through politics. I'm always going to find the political way forward. Yeah. Yeah. We are going to be asking, um, uh, opening up for questions very shortly. So if you do have questions for Sisonke, please, there are two microphones on either side of the stage. If you could make your way down to the microphones now, um, you'll be all there, ready to go, first in line when, um, when we open up for questions. Um, so you and Simon um, decided finally to move to Perth, where he's from, and you've got two little kids. <laughs> Are they growing up Australian or South African, or does it not matter? It's funny. They, if you ask them, they both say South African. Um, and we've been here for four years, and they're little. Um, but their sense of South Africa, I think, as the place that their mother continues to be tied to, is very strong. And of course, when we visit, we, we just, I was about to say we visit home. <laughs> Uh, it's the story of my life. So when we visit South Africa uh, on an annual basis, the kids uh, are greeted by their cousins as the Australians, and they hate it. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, they're such little Aussie kids. 
you know, they really are. They do nippers and they, you know, talk about getting the car. Um, <laughs> and they do, you know, my son has been begging to do footy, you know. Um, so the, I think that they are lucky. Uh, and when I think back about, you know, when I think back on how we were raised and what the thing that my mother was trying to do was she was trying to raise kids who would be able to go anywhere and do anything with a strong sense of their obligations to other human beings to be kind, decent people, um, but with a strong sense of themselves. Um, so in some ways, like the South Africa as a country of our identity was um, important to my parents because it taught us a whole lot of other things about equality and justice and, and believing in rights and all of that stuff. So I hope that my kids have that sense that they can go anywhere and be anything. And I think they are equally comfortable at home in South Africa as they are in Australia, and they are Australian. And if you ask my son, um, he's the one who says he's Australian more often. Why do you think that is? That he's littler. He's younger. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's younger, and I think he... He'll often also say that he's American. Huh. Um, such is the power... Such Random. is the power. It's not. It's actually really interesting because such is the power of pop culture and what America means to the world. So he's a little brown kid, and what he associates with coolness, with music, with culture. Right. You know, if he's on YouTube, like the, he's watching little, you know, you know, whatever SGTV. I don't even know the names of these things, but the people on there have these American accents. And, and he relates to them. He can relate to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because are there, are there many sort of role models for, for your kids in, in Perth in that sort of way? Culturally, I mean? Um, so my, my kids, um, we have a very eclectic life. You know, wherever you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I work at the Centre for Stories. Our storytellers are like the most remarkable, you know, diverse range of Australians, from Irish to Italian to Serbian um, to Kenyan and Zimbabwean, you know, so um, Cambodian. Like we've had the most remarkable storytellers. So the kids are often with me at storytelling events, in our family, in our friendship family circle. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my best friends is Zambian, and her boys. So. We, we mix it up. And then whenever I go home to South Africa, I bring back magazines. So just like, you know, Glamour magazine and like our version of Vogue, because on the cover of all those magazines are black women. Yeah. So that my daughter's sense of herself is not as an outlier. Not, and she will, she'll never have that anyway, because again, her aunts, the people who she loves the most, respects the most, the women in her life who mean the most to her are African women. So it kind of some of that will take care of itself. But I'll be watching when the teenage years come. <laughs> Do you think that there might be a point where living in Australia, you're not going to have to import all of those cultural references for your kids? So I, it's interesting because I don't feel like I have to expend a lot of energy importing those cultural references. Um, so the magazine one is the only one, but really... And the, cut, you know, and the, and the American TV as well. But really, Australia is so multicultural. Like, it's not multicultural, like, in theory. It's like when we go to the food court in Northbridge, we're in a really multicultural... Everyone around us is some shade of brown or black. Like, this is what the kids see, you know? So, yeah, I think it's what you're looking for. It's what you look for, right? Right. So your mother, who was a towering figure in your life. Although very short. <laughs> you know, isn't that 
funny. I totally imagined her as being like five foot ten. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no. Like this short. Yeah. Um, she died a few years ago. Um, that was one of the things that precipitated your move, actually. Um, when you are with your own kids, is she a sort of shadowy figure in the background? She is. It's so interesting that she really is. Um, she was, my daughter is the first grandchild, and there have been many grandchildren since my mom died. And um, she really remembers my, my mom. Um, they had a very tight relationship. And when my son is, he's seven, uh, and my daughter's 10, and when my son is very, very tired, you know, like when he's exhausted, and like, you know, when kids just cry for no reason because they're just tired, um, when he's in that state, he will often say her name, and he will say, she loved Sankara more than she loved me. And it's just because he doesn't remember, right? He doesn't remember her in the same way that his big sister mm. does. And so they, she's very present for them as a, as a person who obviously means a lot to me, um, but just as a person who means a lot to everybody in South Africa. She, we keep her memory alive. We talk about her a lot. We make a lot of jokes about her. And do you find yourself parenting your kids in the same way that she parented it's you? It's so frightening, isn't it? We become our mothers. <laughs> I even, you know, I, my kids will come home, and as soon as they're in, they'll say something. And I'll say to this is not... This, inside this house, is not Australia. Because I remember my mom used to say that about Canada. She would be like, this is not Canada. Outside is Canada. In this house, you are in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and was that, was that like to put a wall around the kind that of values? Yeah, Don't let exactly, it come in. Exactly. Yeah, we're gonna, that we're gonna... was about, I, will, I am the boss. You will do what I say. It doesn't matter what the kids at school are doing. Yeah. I cannot believe that no one has a question for Sasanke. Can you get to... Oh, oh sorry, I didn't see you there. Please, number Hi. one. Oh, I, I just want to say, oh my God, it's like our lives are so parallel, but in different, but same. So I'm a Malaysian in exile. And as you know, Malaysia has, has now overturned a government that's been in power since, since um, independence for 50 yeah. years. So, you know, it's, it's Very exciting. exciting. And I was there, you know, and there were just so many things that you unpacked. I too, I, I would go, I, I've been in the HIV movement, I've been to South Africa, and we always looked for the South Africa as, you know, the activists, the, the, the strategies, you know, they were just so fabulous in the HIV movement, um, around, particularly around treatment, you know. So, the, uh, and, and I just wanted to say that as a feminist, I was very frustrated in Malaysia because the, the feminists themselves were not brave, you mm. know? There was a lot of money following the gender, mm. the, gender the gender development funding, and they never would take the, go to the protests. And I was always frustrated, you know? And, and it, was, it was the political civil rights movement that excited me. We were there, you know? I was part of the Hindraf movement, which was, as Indian, we were discriminated and blah, blah, blah. So it's ironic that now, you know, they're there sort of taking credits for a lot of stuff, but I was always feeling like, why aren't we there with our brothers? Mm. Because our question. sisters was just, yeah. So the question is. Thank you. Um, <laughs> is, sorry, we've got a lot of people to get yeah, through. Sorry. So, the, so my, I guess my question is, so right now I'm sort of in the Aboriginal space sort of activism. And one of the things that there's a lot of discussion around is around decolonizing our thinking. And I think that sort of framework is very useful to, in terms of you know, dealing with race, color, and, and privilege, and all that stuff. So I'm just sort of saying that that's quite, it's a, it's a happening space, and it's, it's quite a useful framework uh, going forward. Because like you, I too struggle because I come from privilege, education, blah, blah, blah. 
but then, you know, there's mm. the racism stuff. Mm. So how do we decolonize our thinking? Yeah, I, I think it, it's a work in progress. I think decolonizing is not something that you do to yourself. What happens is a moment of shattering clarity arises because someone imposes it on you, mm. and, then you and then everyone jumps around it, right? So this is certainly what uh, happened in South Africa with the Fees Must Fall protests and the Roads Must Fall protests. Students sort of insisted and shook up the nation and things had to burn in the last few years for people to take seriously the project of decolonizing universities. Mm. Um, microphone over there. Hello. Um, thank you so much for the talk. It was wonderful. Um, I resonated a lot with your idea of stories and how powerful stories are and how marginalized people um, uh, use stories to raise consciousness, and journalists are using stories to raise consciousness. Um, and you talked about how the white elite in South Africa, there was a kind of a blindsidedness to not opening or seeing those stories. So how do you bridge that gap when there is not that receptivity to those stories, um, there's not that care factor there, there's a kind of a numbness or a fatigue or perhaps just a willing blindness? Um, how do you bridge that gap between these people who are telling these stories and the people who are not listening or not hearing those stories? I think um, the word you're not using is racism. There's people who are racist. <laughs> the blindness is racism. Um, look, I, I don't, I think that uh, people who, who, in the South African context, people who don't listen and who, in, who cling to their stubborn beliefs and who cling to this sort of idea that they didn't know and all of that stuff will, will eventually, they atrophy. They will not be part of the society anymore. So I think there's a really interesting wave of young white people who were really conscientized by their peers at universities in the last few years. And they have had to learn some hard lessons. But when you hear the quality and level of their discourse, it's like night and day with their parents. So I think that's, that's interesting. And I think what they've learned is to just listen um, and to figure out where they fit in the right ways. But people who aren't prepared to listen or who continue to be willfully sort of blind, maybe other people can talk to them, but I'm not really, I don't have a lot of energy for that. It's not your responsibility really, is it, at the end of the day? And I don't, I don't, I have no problem when there are black people who want to reach out and do bridge building and all of that stuff. Like, I'm here, obviously, in a mixed audience. Like, I have no, I'm not one of those people who's like, don't talk to white people, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I'm also not, um, uh, I'm not going to extend myself to speak specifically to white people, because I think there's an ego involved in that that I don't like to play into, giving too much power and space uh, to something that already has a lot of power and a lot of space. Uh, which is whiteness rather than white people. Yeah. Um, microphone number one, please. Hi there. I know you're not an activist or a writer these days, but um, I'm interested in your response to Dutton and his throwing out the welcome mats to white South African farmers. We were in South Africa and Namibia at that time and having railed against Australia's treatment of refugees for years, I felt the need to apologise or, <laughs> or, for and to anyone I met. However, what I did encounter were a whole lot of really terrified white farmers at that stage who weren't the white South Africans who exited to Perth or yeah. to Sydney, yeah. um, but who'd stayed to build a new South Africa, but who perhaps with the, the shadow of what happened in Rhodesia, 
uh, in Zimbabwe were terrified, yeah, but were terrified of it happening to them. And so I'm interested in how you, well, they called it Rhodesia, yeah. yeah. How you feel about it? Yeah, so I think the spectre of Zimbabwe hangs and looms over the uh, whole African continent uh, and whole world when white people think about the worst case scenario, they think about Zimbabwe, which is fascinating to me given that in Zimbabwe there was a huge discussion about land questions. Nobody got killed. Nothing happened, right? <laughs> I mean, no, <laughs> right? So I think that what the fear, the, so I think the fear is real, it has no basis in reality, right? So this is part of the myth, the mythology of whiteness. Um, and what Dutton is doing when he, you know, seeks to offer visas to the poor, you know, persecuted white people, and I said it in the last session and I'll say it again, like, I, I find it really insulting. Um, I find it insulting given that white people have continued to live in South Africa with no one doing anything to them and that they happen to be um, victims of crime which every one in South Africa is a victim of, um, and then would turn around and having done the very thing, you know, if we're gonna use the term genocide, to have done that to black people and then to turn around when people are leaving you alone and you continue to have the wealth and to then use a term like that is, is really, really problematic. So the fear is real. The basis for that fear is not racialized. And the basis for that fear is a white anxiety, a fragility about being surrounded by black people. And I can't help people like that. That's, a, that's their problem. I like the fact that on these stages, when people say really problematic, they actually mean completely fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to substitute that, yeah. <laughs> Microphone over here, please. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about how you're always looking for a political way forward, um, and that's always the answer for you. Um, recently, I started talking, so I'm Indian, and I recently started talking to my parents um, about their parents' experience of independence in India and like what it meant to them, because I'd never really talked to them about it before. Um, and I think it was a really exciting time for everyone then. Um, but I feel that they feel really fatigued now about the political situation in India just because there's so much corruption. Um, and there's a level of disengagement because, because they feel like they can't break through mm. that corruption. And I just wonder, like for me, I find it difficult to see a political way forward through that. And I just wondered if you had a view on it. Yeah, and in South Africa, the, the only way we're going to move forward, and it, especially with this, people are fatigued with the corruption, there's so much of it, it's like wave after wave. At the same time, you know, we finally, you know, earlier this year, we're, we're able to get rid of a very corrupt president. So I continue to find myself, you know, believing, you know, this is the thing with South Africans, we're so optimistic, like, you know, you batter us and batter us, <laughs> politicians keep battering us. In Australia, those people would have been long gone, we're still like hanging out for this, and then some small thing happens, we're, we're so hopeful. So there is a lot of, you know, endless corruption sc scandals, which are, you know, ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, I think 
the solution to South Africa's corruption and all of these issues will be in reforming the political system. We don't have direct representation. So MPs are put on this list, so it's cronies, so the party chooses who's going to be on their list, and then they go and sit in parliament and they eat donuts and drink tea and scones, you know, the whole year, and there's no accountability. Uh, so, of course, you know, the very people who need to make the political system more accountable are the people who are not going to change. You know, so, so, again, I go back to my, like, local organizing. People must demand a reformation of the political system because if we don't, then that's when your parents are absolutely correct and there is no, uh, you know, I don't like to say there's no hope. I know Tanahisi, you know, is a no, you know, no hope thing, but I, I, I want to be hopeful, and I, this is why I'm constantly looking for, like, where's the power? Where are the fault lines? How do we squeeze some way of, of going directly to the thing that is the reason why we are not making progress? And in my view in South Africa, it's the political system. Um, yeah. We are so close to being out of time, but you've been waiting so patiently. Do you have a super, super short question? Um, I really liked what you said earlier about um, how you have privilege to be able to talk about things that maybe people who are in other situations don't. Um, I've been reflecting a lot lately about how a lot of women of colour have parents that have gone through intense intergenerational trauma that have led to a lot of pain in bringing up their children. It's something I can really identify with. My mother was this incredible Filipino woman who raised me in Australia alone and faced a lot of pain and trauma, and she's an amazing woman, but she also passed so much of that pain and trauma onto me. Mm. So I guess so many women of colour I know have that. And I wanted to know if you have any tips or thoughts on healing from that, because it's hard and... Yeah, also thank you for speaking. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. That's such a hard question, and I've been asked it more than once. So I need to figure out a better answer than what I have. Because I will say to you that one of the most powerful gifts of my mother was that she had none of that. She was just a pretty remarkable human being. Uh, so I don't know where she got it or how she got it, but she really inoculated us. Um, with this sense of being loved, uh, with the sense that we really, I mean, we were like too confident. You know, we, ha we had high self-esteem issues. <laughs> I always like, I came to Australia and like I was talking to these moms and they'd be like, oh, I look so fat and I, you know, I feel bad about, I'm like, I don't, the, the high, I, I, the esteem is too high. I, I was like, I, I, <laughs> I need to get new jeans, like, because, you know, but I'm not good doing it, right? So, so I wish I had an answer, but I do think you're on to something very important, which is that, unfortunately, given the way the world works, our mothers matter very much. Um, and all I will say is that her pain is not your pain. Uh, and finding your way to connect with the, the, the things that you can own is really important. I think that if any theme, thank you, and thank you for your question. I think that if there's been any common thread through a lot of what you've been talking about today, it is that it is about that that importance of connection, and that you don't need the bravery to stand up on a stage. You don't need to have the 
access to banners or those sorts of things. It is by forming connections with people that share your experience and values that you can actually find a community that can then bring about the change that we want to see in the world. So thank you very much for coming today and please give huge thanks to Sasanke for such a wonderful session. Thanks, Edwina. Oh, my pleasure.